sort of different things that we might talk about tonight. And the first one had to do with just a reminder of death. It's, it's just come home again in a very clear way. The Buddha talked a lot about reflecting on the fact of death. It seems to me to have a lot of implications. It has implications for just understanding our own attachments, you know, letting go of attachments. But it seems to me it also uh, calls up some very fundamental questions of what we're doing with our lives particularly given the incredible uncertainty, you know, and what happened down in the Caribbean just so forcefully, I mean, a really shocking reminder that we think we know, you know, we sort of, I think, often become complacent and that actually we don't know. So then the question, or one of the questions that really inspires me a lot in contemplating this is what are we doing? <laughs> you know, what is the purpose of living given the fact that it ends in death? One of the things that said motivated the Buddha before he became enlightened you know, when he first confronted the fact of decay and death, thought came, so it said, that you know, why should I, being subject to death, also seek that which is subject to death? And yet really when we look at our lives, or at least a good part of our lives, it's like that's what we do. We keep kind of going after just a whole range of different things that in one way or another are going to die. In one of the very famous passages which had to do with the immensity of this whole incredible process, the Buddha said something like, We've shed more tears you know, for the death of people we've loved in this long course of samsara, this endless round of rebirths, than the amount of water in the four great oceans. And that our, the bones from our own repeated deaths are greater than Mount, whatever Mount we use as an example. 
I just <laughs> just that for me those are really powerful images of just you know we just go around and around and around, and around. being born and dying and the tears and the bones But somehow, I mean, our minds, our minds for some reason, kind of, I think, rarely hold it kind of in, in the front of our attention that this is, in fact, what happens. And so, what does it mean? You know, what, what are we doing? I mean, even in a situation like this, which you was know, so shocking in a way. And we might think primarily of, you know, Martha and Susan and just what the whole event and whatever happened afterwards was like. We might think about how we feel. But that still is a very limited, it's like, it's limiting our response to the very particular situation, the particular moment, whereas it really is pointing to something that is much huger and involves us all completely and totally. You know, it, this is the cycle. And this is, in terms of the Buddha's know, energy and effort for understanding and also his compassion and teaching, it seems to me that it's precisely this ref reflection, but more than reflection, a real uh, a grokking, a really deep understanding of what, just a really deep understanding of that, which is what motivated him. And so I thought it, I would be interested in just hearing you know, your own what your own relationship is to death. You know, not in a philosophic way, because you know, we can have various you know, philosophical responses. Whether there is an act, whether, whether there actually is a relationship to death, whether that is, whether that's something that's present, you know, in your life, or not. Maybe, maybe it's not because I think very often it isn't, even though we talk about it. And if it is, what's, what is the relationship? You know, what relationship do we have with it? because it just seems to me of crucial importance. For me, I just kind of throw something out there to start with. Um, my father died when I was 12 years old, and it was really, it was very, s relatively sudden. He got sick, he died of leukemia, and 
He was a very big, strong, healthy guy. And a month later, he got, he got leukemia and a month later he died. And I was, uh, first much I didn't even know that this whole process was happening. I mean, that was in the days when children weren't supposed to know about these things, you know, at least in my family. And so the, even for that month of the sickness, I didn't know what was going on. And then, like in the last week or so, they finally took us down to the hospital. And, but I really repressed it for years and years and years. The, the strongest, after the initial shock, the strongest emotion, I think, in the rest of my growing up years was embarrassment. You know, it's like everybody else I knew had a mother and father and like one half was just missing. So I was really embarrassed by it. And it was really only till when I was about 20 or so, I was actually, is when it really started to surface what the whole thing meant and, and how I felt and the, the quality of loss in my life. And it just, for me, it just made, I don't know, it just made life and death both extremely real and also very, uh, there's something just bizarre about it. <laughs> very bizarre, you know, it's like somebody's there and then they're not there. It really just made me think a lot of and reflect a lot about what it, what life means, <coughs> given the fact that we die. So I don't know if any of you have any thoughts or comments. Is there a fear of death or a kind of pushing it away? Or? My mother, before I left to come here, uh, a pretty close friend of mine died of cancer. And for the two months previous to that, she more or less lived in my house. And I had never lived with somebody who was dying before. And it was pretty clear to me watching her that her body went through one process and that her being went through a totally different process than her body. So that physically she got very wasted and very emaciated and there was a tremendous amount of uh, inability to breathe and just all kinds of endless physical difficulties. But she in some ways got more and more light in her spirit and more and more focused in the moment and more and more able to be open-hearted about people or situations from her past. And, uh, about two or maybe two and a half weeks before she actually died, I had a conversation with her and I said to her, you know, I think you're dying, what do you think? And what she says, she said, I think that my, she said, short of a miracle, I think that my body is giving out, but my spirit feels wonderful. And so we talked a little bit about my watching her get so bright through this process and 
for me, some of the fear that I had about like death met was really changed through watching this person become more loving and more open to really be present in each moment. And I mean, there was this huge healing of her dying. The whole process of it was actually kind of this big gift for a lot of moments. And yet it's such a mixed up thing because I really miss her and I feel really sad that she's gone. And, you know, I feel really glad that she's gone. It's, uh, but there's some element of fear that isn't there. My fear was more for me watching the amount of suffering with cancer, you know, and also facing my own powerlessness about the amount of suffering and that there's nothing. I'm just wondering whether you have any. My dad died in April, last April, and uh, he had had Parkinson's disease for about ten years, and he was suffering really bad. When he died, I hadn't seen him for thirteen years. But it felt like I was really happy that he'd gone through it, that he that he made it, that he passed on, and it was just kind of, it just felt right. Um, the loss, the loss wasn't really that much of a loss because he'd been a, a thought in my mind for the last 13 years, and so was a thought in my mind now. For myself, I think of death a lot. Um, and I don't, I don't fear death, the, the ending. I think it's a very natural thing to happen. Like with disease and we die, it's like tree diseases and dies. Or everything comes and goes. It's, it feels very natural to me. What my fear is is the pain and the suffering. That is, oh, I have a tremendous fear of that. That's Meditation is great for that fear. It really is. Yeah. I mean, just lear learning about pain. You know, I woke up last night with a real incredible pain and it was something that was, I hadn't had before and it, it was just, what is this? Why is this coming up? And it didn't help at all. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for some fleeting glimpses. I was thinking about, I ought to watch this thing. I'm smiling at it. <laughs> It definitely takes practice. <laughs> A lot of practice. Think about that all the time. 
One of the, the very classic meditation, Buddhist meditations, which is in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, there's a whole section on contemplation of corpses in varying de- degrees of decay. And it's, it's interesting to me because I think, at least when I usually read that, that sutta, I, I kind of just, oh yeah, this is the one on corpses. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd give much more attention to, you know, the breath and watching sensations. And the but just like you described, I mean, it's so phenomenal that <laughs> just that, that kind of clear sense of what the body actually is. You know, <laughs> this living being and then just the corpse. <laughs> and yet the way we relate to the body very strange, <coughs> you know, given that reality. I mean, it's, it's one of the, I mean, it's just one of the most basic identifications we have, you know, thinking of the body as being self. And it, <laughs> you know, in that time of death, and I think that's why those contemplations of corpse meditations probably are very, very powerful. Because it just, <laughs> and, you know, hits us very strongly that this body is 
One sees plenty of dead bodies because it's it's not at all like, especially in India. But I never I never did the in varying stages of decay in watching. <laughs> One of the one of the powerful uh, underpinnings of the teachings and the practice is also about something that mostly we don't we hardly talk about in the in the teachings and don't like to consider very much but it's what's called the principle of dispersal, which has to do with what happens at the moment of death, you know, and the subsequent rebirth. And that unless there is really a strong development of mind, you know, which, which keeps the conscious, this flow of consciousness going in a particular direction, there's this powerful force of dispersal which can take place which is responsible for rebirth, you know, in the various realms. Uh, and that's really why there's such a sense of urgency and reflection on that, not knowing, actually, when it's going to happen. And because of this dispersal principle, there's that implication then for what we do with our lives, and you know, how, we, how we use it. Yeah. In other words, there's a kind of popular belief, even among those who may believe in rebirth, and I think this is quite common in in the, our Western taking on of the idea of rebirth, that it all is just evolutionary. You know, one get, goes higher and higher and higher and higher and higher until one's whatever. <coughs> uh, but that's not at all uh, what the Buddha taught. Much more this this idea of dispersal means that there are all the, there are the higher realms and the lower realms and the human realm. And that unless there's a strong, a very strong force in the mind, and a karmic force in the mind, then it's just like one could end up any place because of the long accumulation of all kinds of actions. You know, and so like it's like there's no <laughs> there's no guarantee in this, which is until one is until one is well established, till the mind is well trained, which really has to do with what we were talking about last week. Those ruling ruling functions of the mind you know of faith and effort and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom when those when those functions of mind have a ruling capacity so then this principle of dispersal doesn't happen and we can see it in just our lives now not <laughs> it's easy to see how it works now as well as at the moment of death when those qualities are not 
functioning as rulers, the mind is very scattered and it's dissipated. It just goes here and there and it's distracted. And we know, we know from our practice. <laughs> I mean, at any, you know, at any particular moment, the mind could be any place. could be thinking about anything. It could be lost in anything. But when those ruling or controlling faculties of mind are strong, then there's a steadiness and there's a coherence and there's a there's not that dispersal effect. Could you name those other those four or five elements that um, you just there's faith or confidence. Mm-hmm. There's the effort factor, mm-hmm. mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. Uh, And the, these are actually this list is this this list of these five factors are they're given two separate categories in these thirty-seven principles of enlightenment. One is they're called the ruling faculties because they actually order the mind. They order that dispersing effect. They are also called powers because they have the power to. They have the power to subdue the opposing the opposing force in the mind. For example, when faith is strong, it has the power to subdue doubt. Effort has the power to subdue laziness of mind. Wisdom has the power to subdue delusion. So they serve as both this ordering and also as this as this power. This other did anybody did anybody uh, do that little exercise we talked about last week? the faith exercise <laughs> faith you know of kind of reading the reading the text as if the Buddha really meant <laughs> did you have it did it change anything in the way you or is that the way you usually read them anyway things that you read that sort of (laughs) 
in thinking that maybe he meant just what was said, kind of was startling. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so alien. From Do you remember why? What particular things? Mm -hmm. Charles, and notice whenever I do it that it's something that I've done before <laughs> where I mean a lot of times the reading is really dense and I'll find myself just getting caught up and analyzing it and often when I do that I'll just stop and go back and read it just just to read it and without thinking about it and what I feel like that does is that it really just It's more like just putting information in, and sometimes there's a belief behind it, sometimes there's not. Mm -hmm. But you know, I can't. It feels like it doesn't feel appropriate to force the belief on it. Mm -hmm. It's like there's still things that resonate, but without thinking about what resonating. And there's still things which I just read it. Right. I guess what I'm. I guess what was of particular interest to me was those things that don't particularly resonate. Not, not that. Not to look for a forced belief on it, right. but <laughs> just what what the internal process was in putting aside the disbelief and saying, yeah, maybe it's this like is so, possible. Yeah. right? And whether that kind of awakened any any new perspectives. Yeah, I mean, it can. I mean, it's definitely a different perspective. Then, like, if I read it, you know, ten minutes before with a real article, right. it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. What I remember now that what made the impression on me of is the times that he talks about the eons and eons and and. And also in the story that you just mentioned with the bones and, right. and the tears and all the time that that he says that it, this has this circle has been going on. So that was something that was for me that's really powerful that the the magnitude of time and this idea of This idea of dispersal of consciousness and the fact of death. Well, it's like you're putting all those three things together makes, for me, makes the practice so incredibly urgent. You know, that and we, we, we each respond in we each may have a different sense of urgency and also respond to that sense of, of how we choose you know, to act on it in different ways. But I think it's really important to <coughs> plant and nurture that seed of importance, of, of urgent importance. Not, it's like this whole, this whole process is just qualitatively different than any kind of worldly pursuit, no, no matter how important and how beneficial or how valuable, it's it's on a totally different order.
Is this making sense? Yeah. <laughs> I remember in one of Jack's talks, he, there was a meditation teacher that he interviewed. Um, and she, used, he, she was now feeding people, and she, he said, why are you not teaching meditation while you're feeding people? And she said, it didn't make any difference. Does that contradict what you just said? It's a quality of more so than anything in a worldly sense that we could do. Um. I think given a, given a, a certain level of practice and understanding in ourselves, we may choose to manifest in a whole range of ways. And I think that there's a big range, or huge range of compassionate action, and we'll all be drawn to manifest that in different ways. I resonate a lot with kind of the Buddha's teaching about the gift of truth being the highest gift. Because it's what actually is the possibility of uprooting suffering. But that's not to it's not to put it in contradistinction to all the other kinds of service which are all they're all forms of compassion and action you know and people just drawn in different ways not everybody has the same skills or the same inclinations uh, I mean one of the things that's really clear about teaching you know is that teaching skills and meditation skills are two totally different, not, not totally different, but quite different uh, paramis. You know, somebody could be really quite enlightened and not necessarily have developed teaching skills or communication skills. And you know, somebody could be a fantastic communicator and not necessarily yeah. develop that much themselves. So I think, I mean, I think what's important, what's essential is that when we do the work in ourselves that has to be done, and then we, it's expressed in whatever way it is, depending on our, on our backgrounds.
In what in what way do you feel the urgency in this life? Like of not wasting, not wasting time. Often for myself, with, in my own mind, when I come across, when I'm thinking about death, it's usually in relation to something I feel loss of, like in my daily, and I have a sense that that I can come into a better understanding in relationship to death. I feel that I have a sense that it's present in my life every day and that I can befriend it every day and every moment if I'm willing to look at it. And I notice that more acutely when I feel pain and sadness from loss. And I tend to look at my relationship to that loss. So I feel like it's present in life all the time, even in this life right now. What is the relationship? What is your relationship to loss? To loss? Um, well, I feel that um, as far as physical, um, I feel that I'm more willing to just sit and let things go like that. But in my mind, I tend to have more difficulty of letting go, you know, sort of more um, pain around it, just pain around it, sadness, still wanting to be attached. And that's sort of how I see it right now. The practice so directly addresses this issue. I mean, it's just amazing because really the progression of the practice is a refinement of the perception of change. And until the attention, <coughs> until the mindfulness is just strong enough to be seeing and feeling and experiencing just the momentariness of phenomena in this yeah. very powerful, intimate way. And it really changes the relationship to loss. Yeah, sometimes I feel it's painful, mostly, mm. the mm. sense of, of a change. But then other times I can feel this very sort of 
you know, mm-hmm. almost like the joy in being in the present and everything being new. Mm-hmm. So I can see it, you know, I yeah. experience it both ways. There's a third way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that one. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of interesting actually because right, in, the, in the practice itself, when the arisings of things get very clear, generally one feels happy because it's like, fo- just like you said, it's focusing on what's new. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the dissolution of things is very clear, then there's, a, there's very often a lot of fear because, because things are just falling away so fast. And there's no stability. But out of them both comes a place of equanimity. You know, where the mind is really in this very balanced state. If if you were to find yourself on your deathbed, would you follow any particular particular technique or practice to use? do my practice, I hope. <laughs> I mean, in a very formal, specific... <coughs> I mean, the, the idea is just to be aware of every moment as it mm-hmm. unfolds. Right, right. And that the next mm-hmm. moment will be mm-hmm. maybe here mm-hmm. or maybe another mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another moment. Really, there was a story when I was in Burma last uh, of uh, this one older Burmese guy who would, I don't know if you know that the Shwedagon Pagoda is this huge, huge, it's like it's like a Buddhist Disneyland it's just this huge pagoda with all kinds of fantastic architecture around it and this one guy had very wealthy Burmese had donated the lights to illuminate the Shwedagon you know, as an offering and it's really beautiful you know, at night when it's all lit up and he was telling Upandita, you know, that he had done this and that, you know, he was hoping at the time of death to really just be able to remember this, you know, as a, as a wholesome act that he'd done. And Upandita really yelled at him. <laughs> you know, he said, well, you want to be reborn as a spirit around the Shwedagon or something? <laughs> you know, and just to really just be mindful. So, because even though uh, contemplating kind of wholesome deeds is better than having the mind just be dispersed. It's still, uh, you know, there can be a clinging or craving in that. Whereas if there's just mindfulness, you know, the mind is really pure. A very good practice, I don't know, uh, daily practice, nightly practice, is, is really to watch the mind as you go to sleep. Because it's, you can really see, or it's a, it's a chance to train, you know, attention when consciousness is getting weaker. You know, which maybe it will be like that time of death. I don't know. You know, but it's and so just to see, to really watch what the mind does. You know, whether it's possible to stay quite focused. This might be. I just like today I found I don't I don't even remember the image but I had found I noticed in my mind a very violent image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, where did that come from? And 
you know, I felt this sort of, um, sort of, like, bad feelings, guilty for, for having this thought in my mind, and I was like, well, just vis- seeing, seeing, you know, image, and it just, like, right. came, and I guess, like, maybe if you were just about to die, <laughs> and this awful image comes in your mind, as long as you're willing right. to notice it, you know, maybe there's, it's better than right. be fighting with it. Uh, definitely. I mean, it, I know that in the whole I, I kind of mentioned half jokingly, but you know, <laughs> an undercurrent of seriousness about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where it really describes just this progression of you know, beautiful visions and horrifying visions and the tendency of the mind to get caught one way or another, either to be pulled into the beautiful ones or to be repelled or fearful of the horrifying ones. And the training is to really see that it's all, it's all projections of mind. You know, and it's like our practice is such good training in that. You know, both the formal sitting practice and also in the time of sleep. Just to see. It's really interesting when people come in to interviews, and especially during the three-month course when you know, people are cooking, and some of the visions and images people have are, are powerful. You know, with... <laughs> real-life things and just to listen to people describe the images and the visions and then also their reactions you know either delight or fear or terror and from my perspective of course it's just an image in the mind <laughs> it's you know it's not a, that it's the thing itself but until we've trained ourselves it's like there's that immediate reaction which is why the training is so important. You, know, you see this over and over and over again. And we really see the emptiness of this phenomenon. Of course, even in a more, in a more mundane way, in a, uh, uh, a more humiliating way, <laughs> is... that same relationship that we have with the thoughts in the mind. In the sense <laughs> that we are so uh, pulled around by our thoughts. You know, it's like they pull us around through our lives. And yet when we look at them, they're, they're nothing. <laughs> they're just You know, a lot of the a lot of the teachings I mentioned last time is because the Buddha was from the warrior class. A lot of the metaphors and images are of you know realms and battles and uh, and so he talks about the realm of the realm of wrong view. In Pali, it's Sakaya Ditti which is, it's the view of self, right? And so, this effort, this ruling faculty of effort in the mind is that sense of, I shall not rest until the realm of wrong view, until this realm of self has been destroyed. Because it's this wrong view 
which has that power to that's the force behind the dispersal power as long as that view is there that's what leads us through all the different realms of existence and so this quality of effort is the sense okay this is the task this is the task of my life to uproot this wrong understanding of self of I Do any of you see it as your task in life? <laughs> I mean, do you relate to it in that way? Or is it... Because this is, this is very much the sense of when effort in the mind, this quality, this factor of effort, is raised to the level of a ruling, of a ruling quality. You understand? I mean, all of these factors have different strengths. And so sometimes they're weak, and sometimes they govern the mind. Effort governs the mind when there's that sense. And so, I, does that grab any of you? <laughs> it's interesting. When when I sit, when I'm in, in retreat, like right now, it grabs me much more than when I'm out there. You know, it's, it's just yeah. it gets covered over by all these yeah. rolling on the things so easily. Yeah. But in retreat, it's, it's very obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a tremendous challenge, actually. Just for most of us practicing as lay people, how to, how to keep that understanding, the, the immediacy of this level in our daily lives. Because it is so easy to get it covered. Does anybody else relate to that as being a kind of a core issue or um I Ever since I came here, I've been thinking about this one a lot because everything else that I hear makes it just sounds like common sense to me, and it validates what I've experienced and what I've. And this one is really new, but what I experience about it by trying to apply it to myself all the time is that I feel relief whenever I'm able to say, "Wait a minute, this is just all stuff happening." I immediately feel relief. And um, and room around. I don't know that I understand it. <laughs> I don't think I understand it. But um, I keep looking at yeah. it. Well, there's a whole spectrum of understanding. It's not either that you understand it or you don't understand it. It's like there's a whole development of understanding. You know, we get very powerful glimpses. And then it keeps maturing, the depth of that understanding. I mean, one of, I think, quite a, a clear way, even if it's just a glimpse for people, you know, in the sitting in those times, I mean, most of the time with thoughts, we're into them. You know, but those times when you really 
when the mind's clear enough and silent enough just to see the thought come and go and and sometimes it's just so clear that they don't belong to anybody. <laughs> you know, the, it's just a momentary arising and passing. And the difference, just as you say, the difference in feeling between that and when there's that identification is so enormous. I feel like I do feel what you're describing, but to a the degree of it is like a, a new beginning mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I see about nurturing it and getting it to grow, it, it feels like a, I haven't completely accepted what that would be. You know, that what to me feel like would be sacrifices that I can make. Like? Uh, I mean, what's your picture of what it would take to make it grow? Kind of real commitment, you know, a real, real commitment in my everyday life, and it finally, at some point in every moment of life, to this practice. <coughs> and what would, it, what would you be giving up to do that? My, you know, just kind of being lazy, you know, getting, you know, getting sucked into it, and you know, just kind of effortlessness. <laughs> I think that expresses it <laughs> all of our dilemma perfectly. You know, this is the, and I think this is, this is what the Buddha is saying. You know that the strength of wrong view, of this view of self, has been part of the mind eons. I mean, it has just been part of our understanding and existence for so long. And even leaving all that aside, if one doesn't you know, particularly resonate with that, certainly for this whole life, that it does take. It takes making effort. This sense of, okay, <laughs> I will not rest until this is understood. But it, ta it really takes that kind of commitment. You know, and so then an interesting question is, how do we do that? I mean, what does making that kind of effort mean? Which is what I would like to throw out to you now. Well, well. Well, I think the question that comes to my mind at that is that everybody's, whatever it is for everyone to make that effort, um, my question is, my, that I hear is, is it the same for everyone? Is it exactly the same for everyone? Or is it different for everyone? I don't know why, I guess that's my comparing mind. That's concerned as to why, you know, whether it should be different or alike or the other, you know, it doesn't make any difference, I guess. So. 
Yeah. I, I'm really interested in what it would mean for, for you. For, you, for you know, what If this is, if there is really an interest, I mean, if, if this yeah. seems true, so how does that get translated? Because it's like in the, the Buddha saying, this is really important. It's hugely important. And it takes that level effort to uproot it, to uproot this long-standing belief. Okay, so then how do we do it? Well, for myself, I feel that um, I think I guess it just is mindfulness or being aware of whatever I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what my relationship is to whatever I'm doing and uh, and I do wonder you know if uh, if it matters how much it matters what I'm doing I mean at a certain point I can see what is acceptable for me to do and what isn't acceptable for me to do. There are things that I feel a tendency to do and I don't know and I see glimpses of how I can be sort of sort of able to do that without having this congestion of self around whatever I'm doing but just doing it and being aware of doing it. And uh, and the relationship to the doing. So making the effort to um, to be aware of all of that. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best I <laughs> I can put it into words. And so I do feel like there is an effort Does it Factor. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, it's the the effort that kind of like the heroic effort that you do on retreat is something that I don't feel I can sustain. So when you when he, when he talks about this, I kind of pull back a little bit because the, my image is that it's you know I haven't incorporated this level where I can sustain that level of living that's being suggested. A heroic effort, and to me that means not almost straining, you know, really pushing this. Whereas there is a certain level of happiness with this kind of cruising. So do you, for you, do you, do you see kind of your life as a going in and out of sort of heroic retreat effort and sort of a... It, it, a yeah, there's a fallout that happens mm -hmm. doing retreats mm -hmm. that you can't really, once you've started it, you can't really stop the process. But I guess there's this image in my mind that it equates with not enjoying the pleasures of, of the earth, of the world. That you would have, that you would know happiness instead of <laughs> experiencing <laughs> being lost in happiness. 
obvious for me. It's much clearer when I'm suffering. Okay, but that's a that's a real good point right there. You know, I think that's I like that. <laughs> when we're outside of retreat and just living our lives, is is our value? To be lost, to be lost in happiness, or to be mindful of it, and do we see being mindful of it as a certain kind of loss? Yeah. I think that's a key. I think that's a key question in terms of how we're relating to our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something that really does not depend on being on intensive retreat. And I think that's just, right there is, is really a, where we can look at the kind of effort we're making. And really at our underlying assumptions, are we assuming that somehow staying mindful of happiness? Are we reluctant to do that because of a belief that we'll miss something. You know, that we'd rather just get lost in being happy. So it feels to me like there's two parallel efforts running. There's sort of the heroic macro effort of intensive retreat or entering into parenthood or relationship. And But what seems to be even bigger for me is heroic, mundane, micro effort of really trusting that I chose that unskillful communication as my path of awakening. This mm-hmm. moment of wrong view is just, is going to do it as much as ordaining would. And I mean the heroic effort is to go through that with the same trust and enthusiasm that I I'm just missing one little piece here. Uh, (coughs) What are you saying in terms of your relationship to seeing sort of the moments of wrong view? I didn't get that piece. That That one sees that that arising. The interest and effort that I put into those has to be sustained the same. Energy that yeah. prep intensive meditation yeah. retreats on. And what you said just earlier about uh, being so afraid of giving up these things, of losing, of getting lost in, in these things, in these outside things. Um, a couple of years ago, a year ago or so, I almost moved to Sri Lanka to uh, live with Ayakema and uh, kind of be her assistant and uh, be an anakarika. And uh, so I would have had to take some precepts and I would have lived on this island. And I just, after I made the arrangements with her, and it was really exciting for me, I really wanted to do it. But then I went back home and the thought of losing music and not being able to dance 
or you know having all these other wonderful things in life out there and it just blew me away it just really blew me from this side totally over on this side and I knew somewhere I knew that there is a middle way that that you don't really lose it by finding a skillful way of dealing with it but I didn't I couldn't it was just too strong and it's interesting since then I've gone I've, I've done you know the outside stuff and I've been playing around and I've had a lot of fun and, and after it, and a year later I, I looked back and I thought so <laughs> you know <coughs> what what was I so afraid of losing I mean it wasn't really it, you know it was it was nothing so for me then coming here was was giving up you know giving up that and it didn't really feel like giving up mm -hmm. anymore coming here now. Mm -hmm. It's different feeling because I've already done that. Come come through it again. So yeah. So it feels for me like um, yeah, it felt really it felt really, it felt really the right thing to do to come here. Right. And uh, and it feels good to to on on a on a moment by moment basis to like not watch that movie tonight, you know. Um, just having the right choices between things, looking at it and say what will is skillful, what what will help me in my practice, you know, what is supportive of, of it. And then just trusting that by those steps it'll mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's that's really a good example of sort of a, a way to bring in at least the, the quality or uh, that, that's the quality of effort you know that, that's quite clear in intensive retreat you know the heroic effort but just in terms of really looking at the choices we make in our life and sometimes big ones sometimes little ones you know and really making that our practice, rather than just, you know, moving out of habit. And, of course, many times we will anyway, because we forget. But I see that as a, as a real place to be cultivating that level of effort. And it's also, I mean, two, what you mentioned brought up two, two things for me. One is, just w uh, the reflection in our lives about whether the things we think are going to make us happy and that we're going for actually are going to do it. And so instead of just kind of doing it out of habit, at least to give some wise reflection to it. And the other is the question of timing. You know, it's just like you said, at one time it seemed too much. And then just in the process of a a natural evolution, that same renunciation can seem very easy. And so there's, uh, there's some interesting balance between making effort but not, and also not forcing things you know, before their time. According to Buddhism, there's nothing in this world that will give you lasting happiness. So, <laughs> 
now. It's I, it kind of it's hard for me to incorporate to embrace that. I should say. I think in this world of lasting happiness, and it's hard for me to consider about my family or do I want to do this or that because in the end, what do you have? Well, uh, yeah, I think I think that. That there is a way to hold those two together, which is looking uh, the degree of wisdom that we bring to to the choices that we make. You know, I mean, it just it happens over and over again. People get into relationship, I mean, desire for relationship with a hope or an expectation that this is going to be the source of happiness in their life. You know, and what an incredible setup that is. And how much more spacious it is to go into a relationship understanding that it's not going to be that. <laughs> and then let, let it be what it is rather than an overlay of a misperception. So I don't see it necessarily necessarily meaning that you don't make certain choices. You know, but an understanding just a, a wise understanding. I mean there were lots of lay people in the time of the Buddha and family who got enlightened, reached high stages of enlightenment. So it's, you know, it's, it's not like even <laughs> quite the quite high levels of realization don't necessitate particular choices. But it does necessitate certain kinds of effort. And actually, not only effort, all of these, all of these five ruling qualities. And so that's why I keep kind of bringing in, <laughs> since we're not making the choice mostly <coughs> to become monks and nuns, <coughs> how can we do it? Because for me, this is what's most important. And so in the middle of making all the other choices, how can we... Well, for me, it's seeing that what I'm choosing it's this relationship or if it's a different relationship or to be not in relationship it's to see that this relationship is the source of my greatest clarity and my greatest insight and to make the commitment then to that mm -hmm. in the relationship mm -hmm. and maintaining that mm -hmm. rather than bliss <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of what I think of as far as the, the purpose of what I'm doing in this body at this time mm -hmm. is just that of s forgetting less and less and remembering more and more mm -hmm. here, here, whatever's going on. It, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me the way that different people's minds work different around it because, like, 
I find it much easier to be really mindful of happiness because I'm really accepting that it's going to go away, whereas pain, which I have great aversion to, <laughs> I have a very hard time being mindful of mm-hmm. because it just, I identify with mm-hmm. it like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's just whatever the situation is, building that momentum of remembering mm-hmm. that it's just this. Mm-hmm. I see a big piece of it for for us uh, is really sort of designing a life if we can that really allows for longish periods of intensive practice and then coming out and doing my thing and then back again uh, I think that I think the kind of the invention of intensive retreat is amazing I mean, to me it's like this miracle because mostly depth of understanding really was It's very hard to do when one is totally caught up in a regular daily household life, you know, and that's why you know, people went off and became monks and nuns. And this form of practice to me really holds out an opportunity to get very great depth and to find a rhythm you know, between that and sort of breadth of practice that we get from our lifestyle. What do you mean by the invention of intention of retreat? I sort of mean, for, as far as I know, it, it hasn't been so common for lay people to go off for look, in a, in a mass where they're always individuals, but you know, to just go off and do intensive meditation practice. <laughs> the, in Buddhist countries, until quite recently, <laughs> it's really been mostly doing good deeds. You know, if you're a lay person, you practice sila and you practice generosity. And, uh, and I think it's quite recent that it has become sort of this form of really doing work. I think I think a lot of the Asian monks outside of this tradition the Mahasi tradition, are very surprised at the level of commitment of lay people. You know, to, to actually be doing this, the, the deep practice. Because it's not so common. And so it's kind of a... And that's what, to me, is so exciting about the Dharma in the West now. It's even in other religions in this country, there's more of that sort of lay people going into meditation centers, mm-hmm. or, I mean, it's not quite the same, but... Yeah. I think just as our culture gets crazier and crazier, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like... did you take the, the, you said to take the Buddhist teaching as literal, that we have fell into four oceans with our tears as literal? 
I would say uh, what I was suggesting was to read it as if yeah, it's true. Which, when one does that, gives a sense of the immensity of time. Right, but did, was the Buddha prone to exaggeration? <laughs> 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 right. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> my, my thought, my bias or tendency would, is that he actually meant what he said. You know, but it, yeah, it, the, 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 the idea is to suspend disbelief in order to open to a possibly new perspective, not simply to blindly believe it. That, that was, but it's like we often come to things with a bias of disbelief which actually can keep our mind closed to something that we haven't comprehended yet. I mean, the, <laughs> the images for the description of these vast cycles of time, you know, this huge mountain and a bird comes once every hundred years and just rubs a cloth over the top of the mountain the time it would take to rub the mountain away is less than, I don't know, a Mahakalpa or some great Iyana. You know, it's a, it's a measure of something. So it's like, <laughs> it's a totally different time perspective. I don't know if you remember the from some time ago when we talked about the four, the four ways to develop the, the potencies of mind, either that strong desire to do, or the motivation, or the strong effort, or the love of the Dhamma, or the... Yeah, just the, the strong kind of interest in the, the deeper picture. I really, my, I really see my mind in that last one. I mean, this whole, this whole big picture to me is just so fascinating. You know, you just want to... But not everybody, you know, it's like we each have our different doorway into this. Um, I think a lot of emphasis should be put on really being able to teach ways of following, following ourselves. What I'd suggest for this week, until next week, look at that question. Really see focus on one or more ways that you actually can make an effort. So rather than kind of throw the question out, throw it back in. <coughs> You know, and, but again, it will take an effort. It will take an effort to do that, to really have that in mind. Okay, how can I do this? You know, in the midst of all the work we do here. Yeah.
It's essential. It is totally essential. I'll just throw out a few, a few small suggestions of ways, but I think it would be really good for everybody to come back next week and throw their own into the pot, because it's one way we can learn from each other. One of the biggest reminders for me is just watching the sense of rush. Whenever I'm doing anything and there's a sense of rushing, you know, that kind of toppling forward, a tightness, and it's a signal. Okay, just stop, settle back. And it doesn't have anything to do with speed. It can be, you can be rushing, moving very slowly, and rushing, moving quickly, and you move quickly without rushing. So that's just, that's one place. It's really reflected over and over again every time we pass yogis, you know. And I think it's a, <coughs> it's really helpful not just to rush past them, you know, but <laughs> let the yogis be on their, you know, and see the yogi just kind of watch our energy. It's I could really see it now from yogi land. Oh. God, it's incredible. <laughs> The energies are so different. It's such a such a hit, such a it's incredible. And again, it doesn't it's not a question of speed. <coughs> you know, it, it's a question of whether we're toppling forward or we're just settle back. Anyway, that that would be one exercise to do. Another one which I found really helpful is just to watch really watch times of selfing, where there's where there's a sen- where there's a strong sense of I, which comes up, you know, and it might be in a reaction with somebody, it might be in a want, in an aversion, whatever. Just you're going along, going along, going along, everything's <coughs> fine, and then all of a sudden, okay, to watch those moments, to really see what's happening in those moments. floor guy doesn't come. <laughs> you know, and either the floor guy doesn't come and I see it and even, in, you know, I'm annoyed or whatever, but there's space around it, or the floor guy doesn't come. <laughs> you know, and just, there are a million things through the day. You know, it could be It could be in an interaction with somebody, you know, where instead of just kind of a flow, all of a sudden something happens to solidify a sense, you know, of self. Could be in a want, you know, some desire. So when you feel that solidification, then you to 
to stop and to really look at what we're identifying with. Just how that happens, how that creation of a sense of self is happening in that moment. Because it will, it will really <coughs> help to weaken the view that there is some underlying self. Because you'll get a very clear view of just, in a particular moment, how it comes on strong. I mean, it won't. The sense won't be finally uprooted, and you know, except when the mind really opens in a, in a very deep way. But we can see it on this level quite clearly. Is that? Do you understand? So you get that drop and say, "Oh yeah, I feel like that because I felt insulted." You or okay. well, I'll take one step further. Felt insulted, and then what was the identification with? was there an identification with 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 feeling insulted or an identification with getting angry or there's identifying with something is something is it the situation is not just passing through that's what I mean it's, it's those moments when things are just not passing but also I mean you each may have you know many other ways of really watching I do that. I notice myself when I get tight. I, I notice those. I also notice myself recently in the last month or so. Notice when something happens and it does just pass through. I go, wow, it just passed right through. I didn't grab on. I notice those too. Right, right. It's probably good to notice those. This kind of encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it seems like there's a very subtle shift from doing that to doing that, and it becomes conceit, or somehow that whole sense of self is there, oh, I'm a good yogi. Right. That's lesson number two. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it could or could not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could. we could just see it with understanding, or there could be that second level identification. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate